0: Welcome to episode 15 of the Clean Sport Collective Podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung. I'll be joined today for this interview by my co-host, Kara Goucher, as we interview track and field and marathon legend Frank Shorter to talk about his perspectives on the topic of clean sport. Frank is a man who should need no introduction, but in case you don't know his name, he is the only U.S. runner to ever receive Two Olympic medals in the marathon distance, including one gold that he won in the 1972 Olympics in Munich, and then he also won silver following that in 1976 in Montreal, where he finished actually behind an East German runner, who we would later find out was a part of a state-sponsored doping program. So ultimately, Frank should have two gold medals in the marathon, but was never officially awarded That second gold medal. So he has a perspective on doping as an athlete and also has a perspective on doping as someone who has been an activist against doping. After his career ended, Frank became a lawyer and graduated with a JD from the University of Florida and then went on through some interesting turns of events to help form and eventually run the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency So in this part one of a two-part interview, we're going to first get Frank's perspective on his career as an athlete, as well as those two Olympic experiences, including what it was like to lose out on that second gold medal to what would eventually be determined was a drug cheat. And then we'll begin talking about the formation of USADA and his role in that. And in this interview with an absolutely unbelievable and fascinating story about how all of that came to be. So you'll want to listen all the way to the end. And then we'll have part two of this interview coming up in several weeks as we continue the discussion with Frank. So with that as an intro, let's jump into the conversation. Welcome Frank Shorter to the show, Living Legend. How are you doing today, sir?
1: Oh, I'm doing I'm doing great. I This is a subject of, about which I like to think I know a little bit. Um, and um, I've been there from the start, and I'm always willing to talk about it to people who are really interested in finding a solution to this drug and sport problem.
0: Well, that's what we're interested in, and we're glad to have you on to talk about it because you have a unique perspective on the topic from a lot of different angles. So we're excited to get to that. Before we get there, though, we wanted to do a little bit of an intro just to let those that may not know you know who you are. I was in Austin, Texas this morning I told somebody I was interviewing Frank Shorter, Shorter, and they said Frank who? That's all right. And this was a marathon runner. Uh, <laughs> and so I said, the, "What do the you mean, same you don't guy?" Know? <laughs> the
1: same guy was involved in a group that brought down someone they would know in Austin, Texas. There you go. No, yeah. There okay. you go. Perfect. Okay. Oh, we'll okay. get to that story in a second. <laughs>
0: so, so tell us, give us your history in in sport. Obviously, you're an Olympic gold medalist as a marathoner, also a. Silver medalists will put an asterisk on that because many argue you should have gotten the gold twice in a row in 72 and 76, but how did you start in sport? Uh, I started at a prep school in New England. I'd gone off my,
1: to it in my sophomore year. In that first year, I didn't even run. I, I played football, believe it or not. And uh, I was pretty shifty and, and pretty fast, but once they got their hands on me, I was down. <laughs> and, and that particular school, it's now called Northfield Mount Hermon School. At the time, it was Mount Hermon School. It was founded by an evangelist named Dwight Moody, and he started a boys' school and a girls' school about four miles away. Now they're combined. He came from England, and one of the things he brought with him was the idea of cross country. Cross country in England, and this was in the 1880s. In 1892, four years before the Boston Marathon, he started a race at this prep school uh, that eventually became known as the pie race. Pie because if you ran a certain time, you would get a whole pie for yourself. (laughs) And I entered this race my sophomore year, and I had been running to and from school from the age of about 10 for stress relief. I was, um, that's what I did. I I had a a pretty uh, abusive household surrounding me. I had six sisters and uh, four, bro- four three brothers, and uh, our father was very abusive and not to go into detail, but all of the above
0: mm.
1: with the girls and um, so I realized that it was kind of a, a, a safe place for me out running and, and school was about two and a half almost three miles away and and I would sometimes run with my books and no backpacks at the time. So I would just carry my books to and from the school. Well, four years later, I go off to Mount Hermon and I run in this pie race, which is a little over four miles. And the only people to finish ahead of me were the five runners of the cross-country team. And that cross-country team were the perennial New England champions in Mm cross-country. Kids would transfer to this school to run in the '60s from other prep schools, and then the other person ahead was a guy who was the junior national Nordic combined champion, who was my idol, a guy named Dave Reichert, who was the junior national Nordic combined, which is cross-country skiing and jumping. Every four, all four years, he was at school. Those were the only people who finished ahead of me in this race. So I said, "Okay, next year I'll go out for cross-country." And just like it happened in college, towards the end of uh, my prep school years, I, uh, my senior, year, I went undefeated, I set a course record on every course I ran and all these snooty prep school <laughs> courses. And um, went off to college, became a pre-med, ran track and field and cross country, track and cross country, again, as stress relief. it was my reward if I we're all done by three in the afternoon. I could go out and reward myself by uh, taking the bus out to the what we called the field house locker room and and run and come back in and get back in the grind. The end of my senior year, my senior year uh, was when the curve started to sort of become exponential, as as I would say. Um, in the national cross country uh, race, my senior year, I finished 19th, which was an All-American. Then by indoors, I finished second in the two-mile. And then outdoors, uh, I started to run twice a day for about two months because I finished things ahead in my senior project. My paper was done. I was ready to graduate, so I started to train a little more. And I won the NCAA six-mile, 10,000 meters, and finished second in the three-mile, 5,000, the next day. So I said, oh, okay. And then went to the national meet, made my first international team, roomed with Steve Prefontaine and Kenny Moore after that, who, again, people who know track and
0: field history um, know that. And again, it just kind of took off from there. Went from there. How did you go from, the, from a 10K champion in college to a marathoner? What was that transition like?
1: Um, <laughs> uh, I went to Florida. I uh, decided I wanted to make the Olympic team, try to, and I dropped out of med school because they wouldn't let me change my schedule. I'll never forget going into the dean and and, and telling her that, um, you know, I, I was a pre-med psych major in college, and I knew staying up for 140 hours in a row wasn't the best way to learn. Um, that was well-established <laughs> learning theory. And... She sort of looked at me and said, no, no, we can't do this. And I, I said, why? She said, because that's not the way I did it. I like to think that I then went to Florida to train (laughs) and I, I wanted to go the same way people now come to Boulder to train. I, the the best distance runner in the country at the time was a guy named Jack Batchelor who had been on the 68 Olympic team at 5,000 meters and ended up making the marathon team and finishing ninth in in 1972. But I trained with him and every, I'm answering your question, every Sunday we would run 20 miles.
0: Got to get ready for the marathon. We would,
1: no, we we just ran, he he ran 20 miles. So I I ran 20 miles with him and we didn't run hard and we didn't really care about pace. But one year later, my good friend Kenny Moore um, I was kind of an adopted duck. Uh, I was, it was all the Oregon runners and me. Uh, Bill Bowerman is an aside. Bill Bowerman, I got the uh, sauna initiation that all Oregon male runners get, which is Bill goes in there and saunas with the guys with his keys, puts them by the stove, and then he gets up to leave and puts the keys on your leg. <laughs> uh, so I, I was even initiated by Bill Bowerman. So Kenny Moore, the, he said he had run the marathon in the 68. Um, Olympics and he said, well, why don't you run the marathon trial for the Pan Am Games in 71? Uh, because it's a month before the track trial. So I ran my first marathon as a hedge, hmm. you know, so that I, I would make the, never having run beyond 20 miles. And, and the way to get out there from Florida, it was at a time when there was no support. meets didn't send any money. They didn't. If you wanted to come to the Pan Am trials, you paid your own way. So I arranged to run a three-mile, 5,000 meters at Berkeley the day before. <laughs> so I flew, <laughs> flew to Berkeley <laughs> and ran, ran a, a 5,000, got on a plane, and went to Eugene, stayed overnight with Kenny. We got up and ran the marathon the next day, um, May of 1971. And we're running along, and we get past 20 miles, and it's uncharted territory for me. And at 22 miles, and this is documented, he put it in the story he wrote about the race, I turned to Kenny and I said, why couldn't Pheidippides have died here? <laughs> <laughs> and and <laughs> He went on and, and won by about oh, 40 seconds or so. Um, but then, uh, and, and the first thought in my mind when I crossed the line was, oh my God, I have to do another one of these.
0: <laughs> uh, which I did. And you but, won, right, at Pan Am Games?
1: Uh, I won the Pan Am Games. And in, I won the 10,000 and the marathon at the Panheim Games. And the organizers of the Fukuoka Marathon were at the Games. And at the time, the Fukuoka Marathon was the de, de facto world championships because the Eastern European runners only came out to run there in the West. Other than in the Olympics, they stayed behind the Iron Curtain. So it really was where everybody showed up. So I got invited there and won. Uh, and um, that was
0: which you won that one four times. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I ended up winning that four times.
1: Tell um, us a
2: little bit about training back then because I've been told like urban legends about your training back then. and talk to us too about, did you guys worry about nutrition or drinking water? or tell us about that.
1: Uh, actually, Kenny Moore was the one who during the marathon, he said, well, I drink d fizz Coke. And, and again, this was all anecdotal discovery because at the same time, exercise physiology was actually starting to, that, that's when it was born. It, it really didn't exist before 1968. No one studied it, there were physiologists, but there weren't exercise physiologists. And so a lot of what the runners did, they just did trial and error and they found out what worked. So we knew, for instance, during a marathon, you, you uh, needed to be hydrated. But, and, and during the runs, um, I would run with Kenny on on long runs, and he would he would hydrate a lot more than I did. I just didn't need to hydrate, and I don't ask me why. Um, but in the marathons, in training I didn't. But in the marathon, I drank at every aid station, took the d Fiz cola, and also drank some water, but not too much. And guess what? We instinctively knew about hyponatremia, right? We didn't we knew you didn't want too much you, if you were thirsty, you drank and that's where the standard has come back to after 40 years. So we we knew um, about that. And then I just always had a sense of nutrition. I I ate to craving and I and um, I didn't eat prepared foods. I didn't eat fast food. I did a very basic cooking and um, and I was so and and
0: instinctively followed the five food groups. Sounds like though you were just, you guys were just training. You're doing 20 mile long runs. That was a part of training for a 10,000 meter or for a 5K race. It wasn't a special thing you did for marathons. It was just a part of how you prepared for any distance.
1: And the other thing where I may be different, but I like to think, and again, we're gonna get into the drug situation, but I think from about 1976 on, training got more complex because people had to explain The improvement, which was coming from the drugs, but they had to sort of Mm. explain why people were getting better at age 34. (laughs) And
0: marginal gains became a storyline back then. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. And and um, yeah, so it. it, uh, I trained like a 5,000 meter runner, and I ran along once a week. Uh, in in terms of pace and care, you can understand this I Did every step of interval training whether it was sea level or altitude Faster than my goal race pace for 5,000 meters. So if I ran An 800 meters at altitude. I never ran an 800 meter repeat slower than 210 Because I wanted the turnover and my theory on that was that the faster you can get your legs to move, your turnover uh, relative to the pace at which you're going to run in the race, the more comfortable you can be, because that 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 difference um, is so much. And that's just what I did. I had no seasons. I didn't do seasons. I I you know I saw what the Lydiard, uh people were doing, where they would have do nothing but long distance. First off, I said, God, that's boring. <laughs> I, I do that all the time. And, 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 and so in a way, that's how I got to Boulder, because I ran 5,000 meter interval training all year round. But I also knew about altitude because my family had moved to Taos. I was one of the first people to experiment with the altitude. My junior year in college, I was running at 9,000 feet uh, at Taoski Valley while I was skiing. I'd run twice a day and ski, and I, I realized when I went back east to school that there was a benefit. So I started to sort of study it myself, and just again parenthetically, from the time I was a, a sophomore in college, even my college coach admitted he said, "You you were making up your own workouts by your junior year." So I was I was kind of self-coached, and and so in order to run intervals all year round, I moved to Boulder because it was the only place in the country where there was a permanent indoor track above 5,000 feet. That's how I got here. I didn't realize how great it was. I just, <laughs> I just wanted to run indoors in the winter. Um, and so that um, when you talk about the, the prodigious training, yeah, it was volume. But the other thing I wanted to say, as soon as you, you mentioned it, I said, you know. but the other thing we've discovered is never discourage a good rumor.
2: <laughs> That's true.
1: Yeah, you, There's some legendary stories about you and your training, I got to say. Schumacher
2: used to tell them to me and Chalaine while we'd be out running. So, yeah, I think
1: yeah, there's it, a lot that went on. And, and a lot of it was, I think, we were able to do it. If you get back to running that 20 miles easily with Jack on Sundays, you didn't care how fast you ran. Time didn't matter. And that habit carried over into our easy days in between hard training. We didn't time them. We ran easily. We ran at a pace that the slowest person in the group wanted to run, and it, and it just settled into it. No one. And so we very right from the start. I was taught by Jack that hard means really, really hard, and easy means really really easy and and I think the having gotten into that that's why you know if people only saw you you here to track going as hard as you could they didn't see all the other other
0: so all the training worked because you won the marathon in Munich in 72 interesting symmetry in that you were also born in Munich right how did that race change your life
1: well I wanted uh, I think the better way for me to explain it is: I realized, you know, right from the time I got off the victory stand as I was stepping down, I said, "Well, what's the goal now? You know, where where do you go from here?" And I think I had enough instinct to say, uh, "Go back to what you were doing, which was law school," and I had one. I had about a little more than a year to go in law school. Um, and uh, let things settle out and see what happens. Because at the time, again, there was no professional running circuit. In fact, Kenny and Steve and I and other people, we were, we were the ones that helped to create the running circuit because we wanted to keep running. And I wanted to keep running, and I wanted to see if I could go back to another Olympics, but I also knew almost immediately there was no path. There, and, and if you're brought up in, in sort of uh, a pattern where the career, if you want to think of it as a ladder, and you're supposed to keep going up the ladder and going up the ladder, there was no career ladder for a runner. You were expected to go back to what you'd done before. Uh, and at the time, Uh, the French had a great word for it, they call it divertissement, it's diversion. Okay, now you've had your diversion, you know, now you've had your fun, now go back and have your real life, you know, and let that go back. And I said, I don't think I want to do that. And so I finished law school um, and then came out here, and um, I started to uh, interact with the head of, U.S. track and field. At the time, it was called the Athletics Congress, a guy named Olin Castle. And um, um, just kind of started to get in touch with him um, through 75 um, into, into 76 and managed to earn enough money on the European circuit under the table To survive for the rest of the year, you would go over and run for the the summer and then um, try to survive. And the other great thing, you talk about the luck. Um, Jimmy Carnes, who became the Olympic track coach in 80, developed the Florida track club. Jimmy knew nothing about running, but he was a great organizer. (laughs) And he organized the Florida track club and Jack was on it and, uh, he arranged for a living. They were overbuilt in Gainesville, and he arranged for the condominium complexes to give us free rooms. So that's what we did. And you would get invited to a meet and get a full fare ticket, and then fly student standby for $50 and cash in the, the, the amount of the ticket. So that's how we kind of survived between 72 and 76. Then after 76, I got a hold of Olin Castle, who I had uh, developed a relationship with. And um, in these things, you know, you, you talk about things happening for a reason. Olin Castle had been on the 1964 Olympic team, four by 400 relay, and uh, he got a gold medal. Well, Olin was the best 400-meter runner in the world. Came out of rural Kentucky, changed his name, went to the University of Houston. You know, total rags to glory story. And uh, he was hurt. And he was like the fifth man on the team. And the Olympic track coach in 64 happened to be my college coach, who put Olin on the relay. Olin gets his gold medal. And his story is, after the 76 Olympics, I wrote him a letter, um, um, and he says, I, I remembered it a little differently, but." Basically, he always comes back to that letter. He says, yeah, you, you wrote me this letter. And basically, you, you said you wanted to talk about you know doing an endorsement, and you had some plans and things like that. And you said in the letter that my coach, Geegengag, had told me that I could trust him. <laughs> 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 it wasn't, he told me that he'll tell you that you can trust me. And so we got together and we did, um, the first endorsement of a product through a three-way deal and i'm telling the story because there's there's sort of a progression that goes along here in how we opened up the sport for prize money so i read through i was a lawyer passed the bar in colorado and i'm reading through the olympic rules and rule 52 said that national federations national olympic committees could have trust funds to which one could donate or a corporation or somebody and money could come out for living, training, medical expenses. And I looked at that in legal ease. I said, I don't see any distinction between that and an individual trust. So I went to Steve Bosley, fast forward, Boulder, Boulder, and Bob Stone, who was one of the, he wasn't my law partner, I worked for them, a fellow named Joe French, who's still the Boulder Boulder uh, attorney. And uh, I went to them with the idea. And, and um, um, a three-way deal was made the US track and field through Olin Castle would have a contract with Hilton Hotels to provide an athlete to do a commercial for the Olympics. That would be me. I had a separate contract with Hilton Hotels for developing menus, Healthmark menus, and courses around some of their hotels, which Mm -hmm. we did. I had a lady come up to me when I was back in in Falmouth and said, oh yeah, I remember that menu, and I ran those courses. (laughs) So we did a three-way deal. So technically, I wasn't receiving the money for the endorsement for doing the ad. And so that, that was the first one and um after that and it worked out well for the athletic congress in Olin castle then came the um idea of putting my name on an enterprise that i formed capitalized and worked at which would have been the stores and the clothing company and i said if i'm doing all that why can't i put my name on it i mean it's my company you know, I put my money in it. I'm on the line at the bank. You know, why can't I have my name on the store? That's how that happened. Then fast three or four years later in 1981. Um. That's when I really remembered this idea of of the trust fund. For the US Olympic Committee and I Got a hold of Olin Castle and said, You know uh, we want to send you uh, a proposal for um, an athletes trust fund and Bob Stone and I, I never forget it was back in the days of the mag cards where you had to go down and you know Fortran and <laughs> type in the mag cards and put it in the computer and I never forget the mag cards always come back and say, didn't you mean to do this you you know <laughs> and you go, yeah, yeah, so we sent a proposal uh to U.S. Track and Field, the Athletics C- Congress, and um, they approved it. He approved taking it over to Internet to the um, International IAAF, the International Track Federation, because they were looking for a solution. Because by 1981, the Eastern Bloc countries were totally supporting their athletes, and they realized they were in big trouble. Um, and so, um, they approved it. And the idea was the Western athletes could have a trust fund, and the Bank of Boulder was the first bank to had these trust funds, and you could take it out on a schedule that gave you no more benefit than everyone knew the Eastern Europeans were getting. That was the argument. And the IAAF bought it because they were looking for a solution. Hmm. So again, it's been um, that, that um, sort of progression. And even now, some of the foreign athletes want to keep their money in a trust, even though I don't think anyone's trust was ever audited, I don't think there was, it just eventually went away, and it opened up. But some of the athletes still wanna have their money in a trust fund, because if it goes home, their federation
0: takes it. You're talking about the professionalization of the sport, which, as you referred to in your autobiography, came for ill and for good, because obviously it allowed athletes like Kara to make a living off of this at some point, but it also brought People to the sport, or nefarious deeds to the sport—sure, ways to get to that money that weren't fair. So, what was your ex- first exposure to feeling like somebody was taking shortcuts?
1: Um, we knew. Um, again, not to go, you know, into. You know, it's in a way. It, I'd rather speak about the procedure than someone who might have been doing we don't, it, other, yeah, we don't other need than Dr. Yeah, it's the blood doping. We knew mm. uh, the Finns, the Finnish, the way I always put it was, <laughs> in 1970, what is known, in 1970, there was a average steeplechaser from Finland named Kuha, and he was anemic, so Finnish doctors essentially did what was blood doping, took out his blood, spun it down, and put it back in. Lo and behold, Right after they do it, he breaks the world record for the steeplechase. So the way I always described it was, therefore, those doctors said, oh, we better not ever do this again. <laughs> uh, right. Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and so what happened? Right. Blood doping happened. And I, I think that's when we, that's when we really kind of knew. And we also knew the steroids helped, but the, the difficulty there was it took a long time before they were declared illegal. But that, that gets around to the point of, did any federation in charge all the way up through the International Olympic Committee really want to solve the problem, or did they just want to put all their time and effort into appearing to solve the problem?
2: Right. I'm curious, in 72, you ran the 10K and the marathon. You set an American record in the 10K, correct? Yes. What did you run, just out of curiosity?
1: 2751.
2: And then you ran the marathon a few days later?
0: I think,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> just want that to sink in for yeah, everybody because yeah. that's not had, how and, athletes do it And, and one, now. <laughs> and one.
1: Oh, I, but right, I, right. I, I ran 27:58 in the trial race. It was a trial on Friday, the final on Monday. I ran 27:58 on Friday and 27:51 on Monday, and I think it was eight days later I ran yeah, the marathon. I mean,
2: this is what athletes do now. We focus on one thing. Um, so I just want to put that out there. That's very impressive, but at that. First Olympics you competed in. Did you think? Were you worried about someone being doped, or were you just like, no. "I'm just here to do my thing," and that wasn't something that was crossing your mind?
1: Yeah, I, I, I knew it hadn't gotten into the, the long distance events yet, um, and, and yet there, there was kind of this thought, but. I I honestly felt that The track racers who might be doing it it wasn't at a time yet when they people were making the leap up to the marathon Distance, you know, you didn't have 10,000 meter runners going to the marathon. I was really one of the first Uh, Marathoners until 72 were basically specialists and so I think I felt a little secure. It, it, I just didn't. I thought there was uh, more of a difference than there is, and so maybe I was. Uh, you know, maybe it was good I didn't know. Is if I knew as much then as I do now, I I probably would have. Um, but you know, and uh, and that's that's when uh, again at at all the events uh, around the world. Uh, even until 76, 72, 73, 74, um, the Eastern Europeans were still not really venturing out that much, and so that's that's really where a lot of the, the first drug use happened.
2: So you head into 76. Are you thinking you're gonna defend your title? Is that, this is the goal? You well, this... it,
1: the, the goal was, and, and as, uh, again, another aside, unfortunately on the indoor track I had, uh, fractured my ankle uh, doing repeat 800s indoors (laughs) and in February and I had to let it heal a little bit and um, the marathon trial was before the track uh, trials in 72 it had been during the track trials in 76 it was at the end of May before the track trials and I ran I ran the uh, trial race with Kenny and um, I, I uh, no, it, uh, no, Kenny, Kenny wasn't there. I ran it with Bill, with Bill Rogers. And um, I knew that my training had not been the same. And the other part of it was the the ankle still hurt, and the sign was, before that marathon, I would have to go in about every two weeks and have this cyst the size of a ping pong ball aspirated from my ankle. So I knew something was wrong. Sure. Yep. And and so when I, even though I won the marathon, uh, the 10,000 trial on the track, uh, it was a great race. It was me and Craig Virgin and Gary Yorklin and Bill Rogers all within about eight seconds in that race, and. Uh, I just didn't want to take the risk. I didn't want to take the risk because of running that 10,000 and have something go wrong. If I was going to blow up, I wanted to blow up in the marathon. And so that's that's why the the choice.
0: You focused for the 76 Olympics, came back to defend your title, ended up getting second to an East German. Nobody knows his name because he would disappear more or less after that. There's a moment in your autobiography where you say, for an instant, our eyes met, this is in the race, and he turned around and just soared away.
1: Yeah, it was about three miles from the end, and it was coming up the the, the avenue towards the Olympic Stadium, Um, and I was coming back on him. And uh, he he got about a 200-meter lead, and I got back to within 50 meters, and he just turned around and saw me, and turned around, and Took off, <laughs> and, and then you got to
0: the stadium, and he was still running laps when you finished. Like he had. Well, he didn't finished. know how many.
1: He didn't know where the <laughs> what he was supposed to do once he got there. He ran an extra lap. <laughs> so I was standing at the finish line waiting for him when he when he came back around. But you know, you have to find some humor in it. And you know, in '72 there was a, a high school kid imposter who dressed up in a uniform and rode on the back of golf cart and. Jumped in and ran down in the tunnel and got out on the Olympic Stadium ahead of me, right? <laughs> and then in 76, I was at just about the same point outside the stadium when in 72 I heard this roar inside, and I thought it was something else going on because it was the last day of track and field for that race. turned out it was this kid who had gone out on the track, and they were all screaming for him. And I got down on the track, and it was silent. So four years later, I'm outside the stadium, and I hear this roar. But this time, I I know it's because this person is ahead of me on the track. And the thought that went through my mind was, I'm never going to hear this roar. It's just not going to happen. I've timed it. Both times, I was 48 seconds behind Hmm. hitting the track.
0: (laughs) That's heartbreaking.
2: That is heartbreaking. That's terrible. Like you deserve that roar,
1: both times. But I also learned that that's not why I ran. It would have been nice, but you can more than anyone can understand that. That I I now know, and I've always known since that day. Other people are much more upset. I had relatives want to kick in the TV screen in '72. You know it, and and it never really affected me. You know, because I know, I knew, that's not why I did it.
2: So you finished 76, you, you've never heard of this guy, yep. right? And you're probably suspicious right away. When did you learn that there was documentation?
1: Um, fast forward, 1998, 22 years later, there's a scandal in the Tour de France. It was called the Festina scandal. And it was when they had just started to have legs of the Tour de France uh, stages outside the country, and there was one in Belgium early on. Belgium, and coming across one of the tw- twenty-three or twenty-four cars, team cars, came back. French border patrol searched one of the cars and found all these drugs. They had EPO, you know, uh, you know, erythropoietin. They had they had testosterone. They even had an artificial blood that was only in clinical trials at the time. It was called perfluorocarbon. It ended up not being used in one of the cars, the Tour de France. So you don't have to be that intelligent to realize that it might just have been in some of the other cars. Just maybe. maybe. Just maybe. Um, and what happened was, that was 1998, and in the IOC, well, what happened was the minister of sport um, in, in France, who was uh, um, a woman, uh, you know, again, at a time when women weren't in those positions of power, um, she said, we in France are now going to test every international, we're going to be in charge of testing every international competition, whether it's the Tour de France, whether it's the Olympics, if there's an Olympics here, and it it never really happened, but the International Olympic Committee saw this and said, Houston, we have a problem. They're gonna catch people. That's not our goal. Hmm. So they call an international conference, just like Washington, to deal with it, and as is often the case, it's to have all the media there, all the coverage, have people testify, have everybody go home, everything dies down, and the problem goes away. And, but this time, what happened was, a fellow named Barry McCaffrey, who was the commanding general, the first Gulf War, uh, he, Decides, and he's now come back, and he's President Clinton's head of the Office of National Drug Control Policy. At the time, it was called ONDCP, all those acronyms. And at the time, it was a cabinet level position, but it was meant to, you know, sort of police the drugs flowing into the country, not performance enhancing drugs in sport. But I, again, I was reading the newspaper, and um, because it was before, you know, going online and look at all this stuff. Hmm. And um, he had committed a million dollars of ONDCP money to try to find a test for EPO. And I thought to myself, that doesn't sound like what this guy's job description is. He must have some interest in how this relates to sport, because the only reason you would abuse EPO and want to test for it is in sport. So I, I wrote him a letter, and I wrote President Clinton a letter because Bill and I uh, in 95 had, had run with him at, at the White House. So I wrote him a letter. I wrote McCaffrey a letter. I get a call, and this is how it works. It's a guy. It turns out he's a master's runner who used to organize uh, an indoor meet in um, uh, uh, Mason, George Mason University in Virginia, an indoor track meet. And he was a good master's runner, but he was also at that time McCaffrey's PR guy and press agent. And he, he calls me up and he says, Hey, the general really liked your letter. I wrote him a letter. Uh, and, you know, he said, Why don't you write something for him? So I did, and it was sort of a quasi memorandum. Uh, and got contacted a little later, and they said, well, the general's going to go to this international conference that the IOC has called, and he'd, he'd like you to go over there. And he said, so you can get on the U.S. Olympic delegation and go over. And I laughed, and I said, you don't <laughs> understand. <laughs> they, don't, they don't want me on that delegation. <laughs> so a so, uh, short time later, I get a call, hey, Frank, it's, it's, it's General McCaffrey. And I uh, have someone here who wants to talk to you. Bill Hibble gets on the phone. At the time, he was the head of the USOC. And he said, hey, Frank, how would you like to be on our delegation to go over to this conference? So <laughs> we go over to the conference. McCaffrey gets up before the IOC and basically says that they're going to they're, they're have to get out of the drug testing business. They're, they're going to have to give it up to... Uh, someone else to do and the executive board is very polite to him and says oh okay thank you very much thank you very much that entity that has any um, uh, oversight of us uh, yeah they might do something if it existed but it didn't there was no entity over them that could have any influence on them so it was sort of thank you very much and came back and that's when John McCain got involved He had also contacted me, and and I'm not the only one probably involved here, but I had written an op-ed piece for the LA Times on this as this was being put together, and he had read it, and he had his office contact me. So after we come back, McCaffrey holds Commerce Committee hearings, and I testified at those hearings, and they and Invite some people from the USOC to come, and other people go and testify. And they, you know, again, thank you very much. And we're IOC didn't even send anybody, okay? They go home. Short time later, McCaffrey Uh-oh. calls over Juan Antonio Samaranch. This story is, I've, I've told this before, but it's sort of not true public knowledge. And I don't know if you've heard it before. And he calls over Samaranch, who I always joked, flew over in the private jet that he didn't fly in because he didn't live like royalty. <laughs> so he, he, he flies over, goes into the nondescript federal office building next to the White House, no one knows he's there, sits down, McCaffrey hands him an outline and says, this is a new independent drug testing agency. And the US Olympic Committee is gonna come up with this idea. And this is what it's gonna be. And they can have their task force, they can meet for 10 months and um, decide, and they could put their name on it. And if they don't do this, through the Commerce Committee and Je- uh, McCaffrey, I mean McCain, John McCain, the IOC will lose its tax-exempt status for all income from the Salt Lake City Olympics. Mm. There you go. That's how USADA got created.
0: Leverage. Wow. That is
1: incredible.
0: Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so you were a big part of that.
1: Yeah, and, and <laughs> I've always, I, but again, I, I'm one of those people that I waited, you know, till now. You know, now I feel very comfortable telling this story, especially, you know, in John McCain's memory. You know, and, and especially at this time where you talk about bipartisanship. <laughs> you know, there was this common goal.
0: And without him, it wouldn't have happened. Why, why you specifically, why did you not use your voice? When you knew in 76 that that guy did it the wrong way, that crossed in front of you, 48 seconds, I think you said, why did you, why did you take so long to speak out?
1: Because I needed, oh, and that gets back to the story. Werner Franki who was the West German cancer doctor, uh, whose wife had actually defected from East Germany and couldn't make the discus team in East Germany because she wanted to be clean and made the Olympic team from West Germany. He was married and um, um, he got very involved in this. When the wall went down in 89, it took nine years. So the wall goes down in 89 and we get all this evidence uh, there's all this evidence they get from the stasi who was overseeing their drug program um and they kept meticulous re- records and they actually had um i don't know if auditor investigators whatever it is go through all these records and there would be two people, and they would go through documents, and they would authorize the, you know, they would hand stamp the pages and initial them to make sure this is the entire thing that we had, and we read it and confirming, um, and all this evidence was collecting. But Frankie was in real trouble because a lot of people didn't want this, you know, to get out. Get out, and his life was threatened. But finally, so this is 1998. Um, the US Olympic Committee actually invites him over because I think um, um, you know, they realize, in a way, they do realize they have a problem. Mm-hmm. And, and, but I think their problem was more self-serving because they realized the Eastern Europeans had this huge advantage, and they wanted to know what was going on so that they could deal with it. So they invite Franke over. I, again, read that he was going to be there. I contacted him uh, by fax (laughs) at the time and arranged to meet him at the Broadmoor. So we we met in the Broadmoor coffee shop, and I sort of told him what my interest was and what I wanted to do. And he said, "Um, "Okay, I have some stuff I, I think I can send you. And he gets home, and he faxes over, which I still have. I can show you. It's a letter between two Stasi generals that are in charge of the the drug program, and they're discussing where they're gonna get their drugs in West Germany. And attached to it is a list of athletes with a number next to each athlete. It turned out they were experimenting with the athletes in order to cheat better, and everyone had a number Hmm. on the program. So next to all these shot putters and swimmers and everything is Waldemar Cherpinski, number 62. The other interesting thing is he's the only person with parens around his name. And later, he actually admitted, because he won again and he got the order of whatever merit is that you get in East Germany, much more than most track and field people would get. He admitted to being an informer for the Stasi. He was informing on his teammates when they would travel. Mm. just in in case so you know his number on the program you know he was
0: on the program and
1: so that's when i that that's that was enough evidence for me
2: and how did that make you feel did you feel justified in your thoughts or did you feel angry
1: no the way i feel in those situations it's like being in the middle of a race something happens and you go okay what do i do and it's almost an instinctive response in a way maybe because i'd been started thinking about it for so many years I kind of had an idea of what you know what I would do and the the and I knew the chances of the IOC disqualifying the entire national track team because it also turned out that Juan Antonio Samaranch and Honaker who was the President of East Germany were buddies. Mm, and course. he actually gave Honecker after 76. Mm, 80, He gave this Honecker the Order of Olympic Merit, even though Juan Antonio Samaranch at the time was the highest ranking surviving member of Franco's cabinet. He was a fascist. Mm. <laughs> so you had a fascist <laughs> and a communist. <laughs> And Samaranch had also put the doctor who turned out to be the head of the entire program on the Olympic drug committee. Wow. So the East Germans had parallel labs at every event because they knew. Wow. What was going on and there are instances in the Olympics, particularly in the 88 Olympics, which now makes sense. You know, it's like Shrek said when he saw that Fiona was a, an ogre too when she came outside the cave, and he said, That explains a lot. I was doing commentary in the 88 games, and there, it was the um, decathlon, and it was the second day, and there was a guy named Jurgen Henson who was leading by a ton, East German, going to win. And at that time, there was a two fall start rule. And he gets down on the blocks for the hurdles. Boom, false starts. Well, now, you know, we're up there talking. We're going, well, now, now he's going to have to sit in the blocks. But, you know, what does it matter? He's got this lead. He doesn't really have to do it. Gets down on the blocks again. False starts again. Hmm. Out. And guess who doesn't get tested? Because he's not one of the finalists. My theory? He'd gone back, he'd been tested after the first day, and they said,
0: you've got to find a way out of this race, (laughs) and he found a way out. Yep. Oh, my goodness, Frank, we have to get you to a dentist appointment, but this has been amazing.
2: I know, we're going to have to have a take,
1: too, because we have so much more we could talk about. No, 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 I'd like to, because, you know, the the history's important, and it's much more for me so that you know more of that history. I think it's important. It's important for everybody to understand. yeah, yeah, that that, um, you know, especially on the drug issue, there were very, very good people who really wanted something to happen, and they were in positions of power and authority, and they could do it. And that's what
0: we need to find
1: now.
2: Yeah, amen to that.
0: For sure. Thank you so much for your time. We will have you back. Okay.
2: Okay. Thank you.
0: There you go, Frank Shorter, everyone. Hopefully that last story there piqued your interest because we'll have more from Frank in part two of this interview coming out in several weeks time where we'll get more on those behind the scenes stories about the formation of USADA as well as his time as the chairman of USADA and then we'll also get Frank's perspective on the recent Alberto Salazar bans and the news about Nike deciding to shutter the Nike Oregon project so we'll get All of that and more in part two of this interview. So please stay tuned for that again coming in several weeks. Thanks to Frank for joining us. And of course, as always, thanks to you for listening and for joining us in this journey. You can check out more information and sign the the pledge at cleansport.org. And you can also, of course, follow us on social media at cleansportco. That's at cleansportco on Twitter and Instagram. Please follow us there so that you can join the conversation. And then, of course, stay tuned for another episode coming next week. We'll talk to you then.